Hi everyone, welcome to Name Drop San Diego. I'm Christy Totten, your co-host along with Abby Hamblin. This week we're talking to Jesse Perez. He's the director of the Shiley Graduate Theater Program, a joint venture between the Old Globe and the University of San Diego. On this episode, we talk to him about his own journey growing up as a person of color and trying to find his way into theater from youth acting programs that his family struggled to afford to the Juilliard School. Perez is also an accomplished actor who has performed off-Broadway and on stages across the country. Here's our interview with Jesse Perez. So thank you so much for joining us. How have you been during the pandemic and what have you been doing? Um, how, how have you filled your time? Uh, wow, um, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, luckily I have this uh, job where I get to shape young minds in our uh, professional theater, you know, and uh, luckily, um, you know, we've continued. And so during the pandemic, you know, I like to say I'm pandemic fine just because I'm hanging in there, you know, knowing that I wish things were different. But, you know, I, I stopped mourning how things could be different, you know, or what the normal was. And I started to figure out with our students how to be inventive and creative with the tools that are in front of us and how to teach theater and pivot and survive, you know, making theater now on this digital platform, which wasn't created for theater. You know, but I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm maintaining. You know, Abby, things are are hard, but I I take it day by day, and and to tell you the truth, when I'm teaching, that's when I forget it the most. You know, because I'm so engaged with my students, and and my students really inspire me. Even though you know, at times it's been difficult staying on screen for um, for instruction. You know, but I just feel like. We're, we're getting back to it soon and you can feel it, you know, you can feel it in the air and the students are getting really, really excited. And I think there's this big surge of creativity happening right before we all get back to it. However, getting back to it looks now, you know? Yeah, what are some you discovered during the pandemic about how to teach, how to reach your students, how to move theater forward and, you know, uh, yeah, what has surprised you about that? Yeah, well, you know, we're kind of stuck in these boxes. So what I like to do is say, hey, use the entire space, you know, get the longest shot you can. And as much as you sit in front of the screen to communicate to an actor across the ether, you know, onto another box, also make sure that you get out of the seat, that you feel your body up, you know, and that you feel yourself breathing and projecting. And as much as, you know, we use microphones here on uh, in the podcast world, a lot of the times I put my students as far back, you know, in their room and have them project to see if I can still understand them kind of as if I was on the in the 10th row or something of a theater. So, you know, you, you, you become creative in them using their uh, environment, uh, the architecture they have in their bedrooms or offices right because you're kind of in their space now you can't really control an open space like a dance room or a studio so all of a sudden you make do you know like for example if they can't fully um, expand themselves on the floor or lay down you tell them to lay on their bed you know and just not get too comfy and stay alert and and invested <laughs> and focused you know but to be honest you know the way that i see uh theater training continuing on zoom is get them on their feet you know, and even though you think that movement is impossible, I say, try it and, and try it in real time. 
You know, a lot of people have been recording or uh, do um, asynchronistic teaching, you know, where I, I like to be there in the, it, you know, falling apart with all the digital stuff happening and maybe there's a lag or a freeze, but then afterwards you come out of it and, you know, you just continue working like if it was live, you know, technical issues happen in live theater, things happen. You know, all of a sudden there's a, an announcement that happens over the loudspeaker in a, in a theater show where they're like, hey, we're going to hold for a second. We're having technical difficulties. So I feel like we can adapt that to this world as well and continue doing the show, you know, because sometimes cell phones go off in the theater, you know, and we have to deal with that. So, you know, that happens uh, on Zoom all the time. A cat comes across your desk, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, the cat's part of the scene. And you see how people just, you know, say yes and, which is a big lesson in theater, you know? So I think we're just pivoting and becoming creative as best as we can, but we're really leaning on the students, you know? As soon as the students do something that you're like, oh, what was that, you know? And, and wow, now they're moving their camera around to to take me to a different location or they're shaking their camera to show me a mood or emotion. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, um, is this theater? Is this a new form? Uh, is this creativity? Are we still engaging their imagination? And I think that's what's key, you know, just continuing to make them creative and let them be artists at this time when a lot of the industry isn't going, you know, uh, a lot of artists are isolated to their offices and their gyms. And so it's like, how do we, how do we keep ourselves well mentally, first of all, and yet how do we continue to work at our craft, which is, is really difficult even in, in, in normal conditions. So it's like, let's continue working at it. Let's not fall behind, which I keep encouraging my students like, hey, you tell me what you want it to be. And what do you need from me so that I can encourage you to go further? Because that's what we try to do as, um, uh, theater educators, you know, the student thinks they can only go so far and you try to open them up so that they go further than that and become empowered at the power of their own imagination. That's awesome. Um, I have to say too, lots of cats and cell phones on this show. So we feel you. <laughs> no <laughs> problem. Birds. We got some birds. Dogs barking, right? All of a sudden you're like, hey, I got to take yeah. my dog out. I'll be right, right. back. Always yeah. at like the perfect time too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what were you working on? Um, what were you working on as things kind of shut down, the old globe shut down? I believe you were both, you had both been directing and performing. Yeah, uh, when the globe shut down, our, our uh, training program shut down, I think a little bit before the globe did because the globe was still trying to do rehearsals, you know, because they had some shows that were about to go into tech technical rehearsal, which then they would move into the theater and start, you know, shaping how it would look for an audience. Ourselves, our training program, the MFA program, was doing a play by Friedrich Derenmatt. It's a play called The Visit. And it's this really amazing play with this woman that's taking down this whole village because she's getting revenge, you know, on an old lover that did something to her in the past. So she comes back with full power, is rich, and it's just turning this town inside out. And the big thing is that she asked the town to kill this man. So the dilemma happens, right? Like, what do we do, right? 
I'm it's already in. I'm already yeah, in to watch we're work, this. We were working on this amazing play, right? Wow. And and I and I was believing in like, hey, let's let's have more uh, you know, female protagonists, more female leads. So that's why we were working on it. And sure enough, right before we went into, I think it was dress rehearsal, which is the rehearsal before audience starts coming in. We were going into dress rehearsal so that way we, you know, the director and all the professors and designers could see it. And nobody showed up that day because all of a sudden you know it, everything started shutting down and of course we were like oh let's try it one more time and we were even given the green light by the university because you know there was no audience coming but we just knew that safety was a big question at that point and so we were like you know what let's call it quits let's call it quits let's gather ourselves let's let's figure out how we're going to move forward not knowing that you know the end point was going to be or is still a little further away than a year out, you know? And so we started thinking and we took a week off to be quite honest, you know? And I was like, let's take a week, everybody breathe. Let's see what the news is saying. Let's see how we stay safe and let's see how we move our programming forward. And so that's when I started talking to all the designers that we already had hired, you know, cause we were gonna do the next play that we were gonna do was The Promise by Jose Rivera which is a Puerto Rican playwright. And, you know, I was trying to bring more BIPOC plays to our, uh, to our programming. And sure enough, our first years were gonna do a production of that. And our second years started to work on their thesis, which is a 15 minute one person show that they write themselves, direct themselves, and then they show to an audience. So of course we started thinking like, how do we do these two things in a digital world? How do we show them on Zoom? Do we film them? Do we do them live? And so all the designers just started pivoting and changing their job titles. You know, like all of a sudden our lighting designer was a, a, an OBS technician and somebody else was doing lighting, but in a digital world. So they were telling how the, telling the students through Zoom how to adjust lighting instruments so that wow. they could get a certain mood, you know? So everybody just started pivoting and trying to figure out how we do theater on this screen you know and so we did the promise we didn't do a full production we did a reading of it you know knowing that our time got crunched since we took a week off and we did that all in-house it took a while before we started saying hey let's start opening our doors to the public because like i said we wanted an incubation period where we were like what is this new tool that we can use for education right everybody's always like oh what's your training program doing as a product what's the product of the training program and i'm like what's the process of the training program so we went back to that and usually if you're in a four-year program our pro our program is only two years the first two years your work isn't open to the public you know what i'm saying so that's where my mind went i know we're an mfa, MFA program i know we're only two years but i was like like other training programs we could go back to the basics it's just us, you know? And so as a community, our 14 students, because there's only seven students in each year and all the design team and our stage management team, our production team all started just talking and having major, major conversations on when Zoom fatigue was hitting, on how long rehearsals should go, what's too long of a rehearsal period, how, how many days off do we need? And just big, big conversations started to happen on how to do things in a healthy way, you know, knowing that who knows what's going to happen when we get back on the ground, you know, we don't know the after effects, you know, we know pre-pandemic, but post-pandemic, I, 
is a big question mark. So I'm just hoping that we have systems in place that are um, productive for mental health, especially co uh, considering that we go to the darkest recesses of human emotion in acting. You know, so I just want to make sure that we're we're keeping our students safe. So in the pivot of making everything digital, the rest of the year we started to make digital plays. You know, we did Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by Sam White, with all fourteen students. We had a commencement on Zoom where we showed like video and pictures of the students that were graduating, and we just started to like, hey, this is our new world. And once we got comfortable, we started opening it up to the public. You know, and then it got a little crazy because we started getting a lot of hits. You know, I didn't know social media was such a huge tool to gather people to get interested, right? They're just interested in the theater right now because they're not, there's no theater to go watch. But if we're getting them interested, then hopefully more people, when the theater's open, start going to the theater itself. So, you know, it just started to become this thing where I'm like, wow, we're a lot of more, uh, uh, so many more people have access to our program right now than I could ever imagine. So I think it's it's a great tool in the sense that we're also, you know, being amplified on a digital, you know, format that we can really see what language does because you have a microphone on you the entire time, you know? And if you're not directional to the microphone that's on your computer and you're over there, like in the theater, you were like, what did you just say? And the actor has to go back and enunciate. So that way the story's being told and it's not just like, I'm being off the cuff and nothing really matters. It's like, no, what's important in the language? Because now we're talking theater. I wanna ask you more about Shakespeare and sort of his enduring legacy, but you mentioned, you know, bringing more BIPOC works to the theater. You mentioned getting more women out in lead roles, creating more roles for women. I know that uh, your graduate acting program does have a commitment to diversity and anti-racist education. Can you tell us, you know, more about that? What, what, what are you working on and, and why is that important to you? Yeah, well, you know, being a Mexican-American coming from East Los Angeles and literally infiltrating the, you know, mostly white structures that are the American theater and the American theater training. Um, I just kept knocking. I was persistent, you know, uh, I just couldn't stay away. I loved the work so much that I found my way in one way or another, you know, and, and I had ama amazing mentors that believed in me, mostly white you know, that would take me under their wing and say, hey, kid, this is the next step. And, you know, as much as they were tests, I just knew that as a, a BIPOC artist, I had to work twice as hard, you know, and, and that's just the reality. And maybe it's a reality that's changing because the truth is racism has been running rampant in our industry since its inception. You know, a lot of people have not been welcomed to that table. And there was a document that came out in July from We See You White American Theater. And basically it was a list of demands that unmasked all of that stuff that was hidden underneath racism. The fact that, you know, there was problems with intersectionality, there was problems with leadership, there's problems with boards, there's problems with training programs. And the last five pages of that 30 page document, it's all about training programs because honestly, it starts with education, right? So 
you just start asking, how, how do we mobilize this the fastest way possible? And I knew that a lot of people were starting to put out social justice action plans. So I was like, that's, that's what we have to do. Knowing that the globe was putting out their own social justice action plan and roadmap, but I knew that we were a separate institution as well. We were that training program. So I, had a, I, I wanted to go back there and see how we made change at the educational level. So I wrote my own social justice action plan and I ran it by the university and our Dean, Noelle Norton, helped me look at it and say, hey, you can make this more active as opposed to being like, change this, change that. This is the action, like just get right to the action, get to the bullet point. You know, and I was like, okay. So with the help of people, but me mostly like, you know, shepherding this thing, we got it out there. And it became a separate document that's right on our website. Like if you go to our website, you will find it, graduateacting.com. And basically it's broken up in five phases. And we, we try to do something every six months that holds us accountable to changing the system. You know, and the main thing we want to do is we want to make EDI work an explicit core value at our institution. So we have uh, a third party a, a company called Revolve here in San Diego that's coming and teaching us EDI training. Faculty, uh, students, uh, staff. And so we're all getting a similar vocabulary on how to communicate whenever harm occurs right because that's the main thing we want to do is decrease harm in our in our program the other thing we want to do is diversify curriculum like crazy because the truth is our program and i'm going to start talking about the i now our program hadn't produced a bipoc playwright since its inception and now it's a, it's been around 34 years so I got here in the beginning of 2019, even though people say that I was here in 2018, uh, take that with a grain of salt. I started in January. <laughs> and, and the first thing I did was I got here and I went on the road for recruitment to bring new students to our school, right? And right away, you know, um, when our school was created, the, the numbers were four men and three women. That was the ratio that we would bring to our school. And when I started seeing that, I was like, wow, that's not equitable. So right away, even before the pandemic and the execution of George Floyd, you know, I, I was already like, there's something wrong here. We have to change knowing that I've come from the institutions I've come from. And then when I got out in the real world, the actual work I got to do as a BIPOC artist. So I was like, why don't we bring four women and three men? and see what happens. And of course, everybody's like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? You know, and I was like, let's just try it and see what, what changes occur and what, what shock it does to the system. Nothing happened. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it was like, oh, but Shakespeare and all oh, the male roles. And I'm like, I'm like, if we can't really stretch Shakespeare and rub up against that text in a way that we're wrestling with him, because I, I get it, he's a good playwright. Is he perfect? No, he's a human being. Is there more than one writer in some of those plays? Probably, you know what I'm saying? So we have to just take it at face value. It's words on a page. It's meant for interpretation, whoever grabs that script. It cannot be an elitist thing. It cannot be like, oh, you know, it was written in England, only, only Brits can do it. Or if we do it, we have to do it like the British. We're not in England. This is America. 
And America has its own problems that we can reflect off of that text if we interpret the text. So I think that's why this document was made for interpretation. So stop telling BIPOC artists how they can and can't do it or that it's for them or not for them. It's a piece of literature. I would hope it's for everybody, right? So why not tell those stories? Why not tell Lear through a Puerto Rican lens? Why not tell Richard II from a, a, a female point of view and actually cast Richard as a female, you know? And then the story starts taking a different shape. And what I think it does, it's, it becomes more resonant to our society today, right? And that's what we're trying to do is rearrange the furniture in, in people's minds. But that's today, it's happening now. Why Shakespeare, why now is a big question in, the, in, in our program. Yeah, and so that's the question I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, you're saying the representation there historically was not great, we're improving it. Why is that even worth doing? Why is it worth bringing Shakespeare to the modern theater as opposed to being like, you know what, you were cool, you were here for a long time, we appreciate you, but we're moving on. So, so why him? Um, the stories are amazing. You know, he goes back to the root of like, hey, I'm just gonna tell a story with nothing. You can do Shakespeare in a corner. You know what I'm saying? Everybody thinks you might need castles and spears and stuff like that. You don't need any of that. It could be pure, pure theater, right? But we also can't uphold him as the most important playwright of all time. There's other playwrights, like I said, that have not been invited to the table or due to the fact there was erasure because of the color of their skin. And so they were held down as being published. But if we can unearth those texts, those documents and start doing that theater, then all of a sudden there's a balance on what we say perfect playwriting is or what playwriting should be. We get it, Shakespeare's great, great, let's teach him. But I also know that my relationship with Shakespeare and I, I run a classical training program is love-hate. Hmm. I find him racist sometimes. Sometimes I look at that text and I'm like, wow, is there a more misogynistic text than this? You know, and so at times I take a break. I leave him at our institution. It's hard because he's kind of everywhere. It's what the institution was built on. So as much as I want to leave him, he'll be in my ear, you know, so I can't. That's okay. You know what I'm saying? I don't mind being around him. When I choose to engage with him, then I choose to engage with him. But that comes with all that I am. And I'm trying to show my students that same sort of process. How do we fuse our own DNA into that British playwright, right, in America? How do we do American Shakespeare is the big question. Well, let's talk a little bit about your own arts education, because we read that, um, you know, you were in the Stella Adler Conservatory in Los Angeles. Uh, and then you had to transfer to a uh, performing arts school um, when you were un your family was un unable to afford that education anymore. Then you went on to Juilliard. You've become highly successful, but you have had some barriers um, from what we've read. You know, how did you push through those barriers and how did they affect you as an educator now and as an actor yourself, which we know you still do? Yeah, you know, that's the big question, right? How does financial need not become a factor in our work? right? How do we not just 
allow the theater to go to the privileged. Because the truth is actor training, you know, when you're at, at, a, at a young level, like places like Williamstown or Actors Theater of Louisville, right? You need money to pay for that program, you know? The parents will pay for the, their, their kids to go basically to summer camp and work with professional actors and learn the craft while being around that community and environment. You know, people from more, um, uh, 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 I guess, a diverse, diversified economics, right? Like economically diverse, don't get that opportunity. So the way I did it is I would literally hold bake sales. <laughs> you know, I would raise money uh, trying to get into these programs and figuring out where was the free program that I could get into that was worth my while. So I did research as a student, as a kid, I'm telling you, it's, it's all I cared for. I mean, I started with sports, but then I got into dance, you know? And when I, when I got into dance, all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, this is okay, but uh, not, my, not, not what I'm meant to be doing. So eventually I went up to one of my dance instructors and I said, I wanna tell stories. And he was like, okay. And I said, like Charlie Chaplin. And my, my father, being a Mexican-American, liked to watch a lot of silent films because he didn't speak English. So we watched a lot of Chaplin. And I would sit there, you know, and watch it with him. And I told this dance instructor, I, I want to be like, like Chaplin. And this guy took me to the Stella Adler Conservatory of Acting West. Now, mind you, due to the fact that I was dancing for a while and had a little bit of a, a, a bank of money, to put into my training, I started to do it. But after a while, that money ran out and I was like, oh shit, I can't pay for this. And one of my parents and I was like, I'm taking acting lessons. And they, they laughed, you know, they were like, what about school? When are you going? Who's taking you? How's this happening? And you know, I was, I was like, I'll catch a ride. I just need money. And I forget what the cash was, you know, but eventually they were like, we can't pay for that. We can't afford it. Sorry, Jess, we can't. So I started to look where to go for free. And the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts is a public school that still exists today on the Cal State LA campus that was free. So you had to audition, I auditioned, I got in, I started to see what the competition was. I worked with some great people there. I was like, where did you go to school? And they were like, I went to Juilliard. How do I get in there? Work your butt off. Mm -hmm. So I worked my butt off for you know three years and eventually I auditioned for Juilliard and I got into Juilliard, okay? And once I was at Juilliard, I realized how little I knew. Mind you, they were teaching that white Eurocentric curriculum. You know, it was Shakespeare, it was Ibsen, it was Strindberg, it was all Eurocentric, right? Uh, Beckett, you, you name it. If we even got to Beckett, the absurdists were rarely touched in classical institutions. But um, I started to, 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 to really fall in love with it just because it was good writing. And like I said, it's a document, they're words on a page, right? What strikes you, what do you see through your lens? And so I started to fall in love with it, with just writing, with language, you know? And that's when I started to discover BIPOC playwrights and playwrights that were not white because our school, Juilliard, ha still has a, a playwriting program. And there was a black playwright there named Michael DeVell Wynn, you know, who I think is now in Atlanta. He wrote a play about Tupac Shakur <laughs> called Up Against the Wind, okay? An awesome play, an awesome play. And 
he, as a black playwright, wanted to be given a platform at the school and was like, why isn't my play being produced? It's ready. Let's do it. I have a, there's a, a directing program here. I'll get one of those student directors. We'll get a team together and we'll do it. Just give the money. They gave the money. They gave the money. He was a really close friend of mine and they were like, hey, you know, I, we saw your cast list. Jesse's supposed to be doing Shakespeare this semester. And Michael was like, uh, well, Jesse's playing Tupac's best friend. And literally they, <laughs> literally they were like, it. they were like, uh, Tupac's best friend isn't Mexican. And, and so <laughs> Michael Wynn, being the playwright that he is in the world that he was creating, he literally named the character Jerome Perez on the cast list. And he was like, guess what? <laughs> Tupac's best friend is now Mexican. So they came to me and they were like, Jesse, what are you going to do? Shakespeare or Michael DeVell win? I, I think chose, I can guess. Yeah, I, you <laughs> can guess. I became Tupac's best friend. As soon as we graduated, that play was produced off Broadway. And it started, amazing. started my career. So, yeah. so it's just who you're introduced to when and how you utilize these white playwrights for your own benefit and your own stories. So we have a rapid fire round to help get to know you a little better. Oh, Are you up for that? Okay, let me see if I can do this. <laughs> sure. It never actually works out as rapid fire, but we try, you know. I know, you're going to get my Let's slow mind there. being like, how do I answer this? No, but no, I'll try to be rapid fire. Let's do okay. it. So the first one is, we read that you're a huge Star Wars fan. So which movie is your favorite? Oh, uh, uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, that's a hard one. We start, um, yeah. uh, I know. Now, wow, nice we rapid circle back? fire. Yeah, I, I, I'd say Return of, Return, Return of the Jedi, I'll give it to you. Okay. Um, what is your favorite movie or show that you've seen lately? Handmaid's Tale. Yes, they're coming back soon, right? Mm -hmm. New season? Yeah, new season. Yeah. Here we Can't go. Wait. Okay, what's the most challenging role you've ever taken on as an actor? Macbeth. Who did you play in that? Macbeth. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, yeah. I guess that would be the hardest. Yeah, it, it was that PTSD thing, you know? It's like yeah. all of a sudden Shakespeare was writing about all these mental health issues back then that didn't have a label or we couldn't actually diagnose. And then when you start working on these plays, you're like, why is, why is McBee dealing with this? And you're like, oh yeah, he was slaughtering people on a field like a couple of hours ago. So it, it, it's an interesting thing about psychology and the human condition. Uh, why Shakespeare's important again, mm, but mm -hmm. there's other playwrights, there's other playwrights, just tough stuff. Yeah, that's heavy. Um, what's your favorite stage that you've ever performed on? Uh, uh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> I would say uh, the Domplatz out in uh, Salzburg, Austria. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. What did you perform there? I did a play called Yeda Man, which is a Hoffmannsthal adaptation of Everyman, a medieval uh, morality play. But he basically took it and made a, a rich man story about, you know, him dying and what he wants to take with him to death. And I was an ensemble member performing there in German, but uh, the stage, this is like a hundred year old festival. Uh, the stage was right in front of a, of a famous cathedral. And so the whole backdrop was this cathedral. And so this gorgeous play just came out of this cathedral. And that sounds amazing. Over a thousand people a night. Wait, you speak wow. German? 
I do not. I do not. I learned how to sing a little bit in German, you know, and and I was brought out there as an American to do choreography. And so I did choreography and they were like, hey, jump on the ensemble. And there was also a lot of puppetry work in it, too. Mm. This guy, Julian Crouch, worked on it and there was some beautiful puppetry. He also did the set, whatever wasn't the cathedral he also built in front of. Gorgeous work. I know this is not exactly rapid fire, but can we hear you sing in German just a little oh. bit? Oh my God, no, 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 come no, 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 let's not do that. No, no, I'm gonna slaughter it. It's been a while. <laughs> don't, don't oh, tempt man. me, don't tempt okay. me, don't do it. We'll, we'll right. bring you back another time. Yeah, we're gonna give Stop you- Stop it. This yeah, you can we'll practice. <laughs> um, okay, so if you had to put one item into a time capsule to represent your life and yourself, what would you put? <laughs> I have this little miniature theater, you know, Aww. that's just like a little cutout here and it's got a little clown in the middle. And I would just put that in there. I think that encompasses a little bit of my life. Mm, I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah. Next month, I'll bring it when I sing in German. <laughs> yes, I'm so there. I'll be in the front row. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, when you're not in the theater, where is your favorite place to be? On my balcony reading a novel. Mm, what are you reading currently or what have you read recently? I'm reading a bunch of books on training, believe it or not, because I'm trying to expand on approach, you know, and how to give access to people that have, haven't had access to certain things. So I'm really looking up, uh, you know, the discovery of the clown. Um, there's a couple of things that I'm reading. Uh, Anna Devere Smith has uh, Letters to an Artist which is an amazing workbook about presence and confidence and being a, a black artist in America. It's really gorgeous. Like it talks about the man. I mean, it's a little dated. I think it was written in the nineties, but it's still so, so resonant. What was your favorite toy or game to play as a kid? Hopscotch. Mm. Oh, I, there we go. I love hopscotch. You know, we had a little we had a little sidewalk in, the, in my family home and, you know, the chalk, we just get it out. But I think what it led to was like rhythm, you know, how fast you can do it. And I was like, oh, shit, this is like dancing, mm -hmm. you know. So whenever people weren't looking, we wouldn't throw like the little quarter or whatever. I would just do dance moves on the hopscotch, you know. <laughs> and that was I just realized hopscotch should have made like a huge comeback during this era yes. because for people who just have a sidewalk out front, it's, it's endless hours it, of energy. It's a good workout too, you know, and you can make them as long as you want. At least we would, you know, it'd be like all oh. the way down the block. It'd just That's be like, awesome. you know, going through it as yeah. opposed to like eight to 10 squares. Awesome. Uh, just kind of okay. as a, a side note, that concludes the rapid fire round, unless you have good. another one, Abby. No. Said, no, did I'm you good. say good? <laughs> no, I didn't. I just, I was like, oh man, that wasn't very rapid fire. I no, took it like a little. It side never note. ends up that way. <laughs> but so maybe in the editing, you'd be like. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about clowns. Like you mentioned, your little miniature theater with the clown inside. You're reading a book about clowns. I think sometimes, as like people who are not educated about theater and performance, you're like, oh, it's an insult. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you're a clown. But like, yeah. what, what, what does it mean to you? And like, what? it through your research wow you know yeah that's a great question because you know right now we're doing a search to find ahead of movement and um uh, a lot of the questions are like what, what is that foundation you know what is that core training that we want to give them and i always say physical comedy improv and clown 
you know, and people are, people ask the same question, you know, Christy, they're like, what, what is clown? And it's not a circus clown. You know, I don't want you to think that you're going to Ringling Brothers or, you know, or anything like this, not Cirque du Soleil. Clown is actually freeing the inner child to come out and play. It's the um, unsocialized spirit. It's mm -hmm. that, that, you know, um, attitude that's never been told no, you know, so they don't know any better. They just do it. Now, to get there to that point of irreverence and play, you need so many exercises to free yourself from all the armor that the world has put upon you. All the armor that you put on to be like, oh, I gotta be an adult. What? Oh, this is how I behave. Oh, my fork is held this way. But if you throw all of that out the window and just become sort of your softest brain self, then all of a sudden you can look at the world in a more curious way with wonderment and your imagination starts opening up and you can create entire shows, you know? And all of a sudden you can add that work to a Shakespeare clown or a jester that knows more, you know, than the monarchy, that knows the inside scoop and knows how to turn it on royalty, you know? Or is the entertainment for royalty, so it has to be as witty as the king and then outdo the king. So. How, how that transfers into the freedom of doing really heightened text, that's the connection I want in my two-year program. You know what I'm saying? That freedom of being like, I can be as silly as possible and have the craziest fun, and now how do I focus it in into this language that I can pull one over on King Lear? You know, King Lear leaves with his fool. You know, so it just becomes that thing on, we have to remember as much as there's tragedy in the world, there's comedy. And if you ask any actor, they'll be like, oh shit, comedy's hard. You know, get me to the dark recesses and ah, let me pull myself apart, but try to make someone laugh and people right away, uh, because people have different a different sense of humor. You know, it's hard to pinpoint what's funny to everybody, but to swing and try to take three takes at what's funny to everybody, you might hit it more than once, you know? So that's. That's sort of the comedy idea, like going further than you think you can. And then all of a sudden, what's funny to one person that that might not be funny to the other, all of a sudden it just Probably, starts becoming yeah. universal and laughter just becomes infectious. And then all of a sudden we're in a world of just complete, complete euphoria. Wow. I love that. That's amazing. I feel like we all need clown training. <laughs> I think so. Sign I think me up. Yeah, yeah, you know, and there's some amazing professors out there. They all work at amazing institutions, but I'm going to try to steal them to bring them over to ours, you know? Ooh. And, and you know, we are also definitely prioritizing BIPOC um, uh, professors, you know, uh, just because I know that, you know, when I first got here, we had an all-white faculty. And now there's opportunity where things are changing and positions like this are opening up. And I'm just really excited at, at the opportunity to start changing things in the, in the way I see them a little bit and making it a, a more inclusive, more equitable, more celebrated theater from all arrays of life, not just the white Eurocentric culture. So, yeah. So we saw the big news that the Old Globe is looking to make a comeback in late June, early June. Um, what can we expect? What do you hope to uh, bring back to the stage? Um, what can we see there, uh, hopefully in the months ahead? Well, Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, 
I'm, I don't want to speak out of turn because I, I, I work at the Old Globe, definitely, but the programming of the Old Globe, you know, is done by Barry Edelstein. But I do know that we're going to come back in a safe way. We're moving at the speed of safety so that everybody feels comfortable. And I know that we're going to open up our outdoor stages, although June 15th lifts up a lot of other things conditionally. So let's see how things turn out. But uh, we're going to start showing movies outdoors, you know, to bring people in slowly and see people, you know, kind of in, a, uh, in the cinema before live. And then there's slowly going to come some cabaret acts, you know, and then and then some that's going to open up more people in the outdoor space. And then I think we're going to engage the indoor space. But I'm going to let the globe take care of what's going to program in the indoor space, knowing that they're juggling a couple of things right now. But then also there might be a big uh, Shakespeare pageant out on the festival stage directed by uh, somebody really important in our, at our theater. I don't want to say anything. <laughs> and so I, I think that's where we start engaging. Uh, the, the theater again, mm -hmm. you know, before we get through to the end of the year, which I think they're trying to bring back all of their holiday programming. So I'm hoping that you all can count on the Grinch so. coming back live, you know, and getting getting all those kids in the theater again and, and different people to go see Grinch, you know, because I've gone to Grinch and I've sat next to people that don't speak English and they're loving it. They are loving it. So it's the music, it's the energy. And so I, I'm hoping we get back there, you know, and that once we get to the holiday programming, that we're a little bit back to normal. And I'm hoping vaccinations do a big shift as well, you know, and all of us are, are crossing our fingers. So I love that. Uh, just one final question from me, but so what can we expect from your program, your students, anything in person through the rest of the year? Or do you know yet? Um, you know, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, we just got the AOK. -okay. Wow, I'm really speaking out of turn here since you got me on a work day. We got the AOK. -okay. We, we have this huge warehouse that we got before the pandemic that we never really utilized, but we started to use it with filming. So we would create pods in the warehouse. The warehouse is huge. There's a, a performance space, a dance space. I'm in the warehouse as we speak. And then there's some rehearsal room over there. And so we started to bring students here to film them so that we had we could have more control of the environment, start building sets, have them have them work in an environment that's more controlled as opposed to being in their closets or in their living rooms. And so we're going to do more of that work, knowing that audience is probably not going to be possible until the summer. We're also trying to do a bunch of workshops with playwrights that are trying to hear their plays that have more than a 10 person cast. Right, because a lot of those plays aren't being produced. It's hard to get that many people in a, in a room right now. So we're trying to do that with our student body. So we're offering our student body to um, great playwrights that are trying to do workshops and hear their plays for the first time. What else we're going to do before we start welcoming audiences to see our work is since we didn't get to do a lot of movement work in person, we're going to bring uh, a lot of movement people to work with our students. We're going to create like a a module of three different movement approaches. You know, um, one of them is going to be clown. The other one is going to probably be Suzuki. And the third one is going to be a fight module. So we can learn combat and, you know, physical grappling with uh, with actors so that, you know, of course, it's it's make believe, but that wow. you know, put it in their body. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're mostly going to use the festival stage until they kick us off of it, which is at the Globe, because that's what's safest, right? The, the, the teacher stays in the audience and the students use the entire stage, which is huge. 
So that's what we're doing. And then hopefully in the in the fall, we can see you all in person with our new programming. Yes, please. We start with the big <laughs> fall, we start with the big fall Shakespeare show. So that's probably the first thing that'll be open to the public in a real way. Thank you to Jesse Perez for joining us on this episode of Name Drop San Diego, and thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite app and tell a friend. You can find us on social media and at sandiegouniontribune.com. See you soon.